and welcome to today's podcast. Today is our great pleasure to have with us Julia van der Sommen from The Sample Room. Julia, welcome. Hello, Debbie, and thank you for having me. It's great to see you. Oh, it's a pleasure. It really is. Yeah, it really is. It's, um, it's dawn here and dusk in Australia. It certainly is. It's 7.30 at night. It's just started in summer, so we still have some light outside, but so the days are getting longer here. And work, they're getting shorter here. <laughs> very, very short. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Absolutely lovely to have you. Really is. Um, we've been following each other and chatting for quite some time and have worked on a couple of I'm projects with, with Vesper, actually, um, which has been brilliant. Mm-hmm. You have an absolute wealth of experience. Um, and I'm really so happy that you've you've agreed to join us today to share that with the audience. So, Julia, uh, in summary... Could you share your career journey? How did you enter the industry and when and why did you start the sample room? Mm, great question. Thanks, uh, Debbie. So I have been sewing since before I was 10. Okay. And the reason I know that is I won my first award at the local show for a quilt that I made when I was 10, mm-hmm. which was sort of a bit of a stamp. Um, and I moved very quickly into making my own clothes. So it's something that I've always done. And I guess it's something that I was always good at. So it was a very natural progression for me to move into fashion after I finished high school. Okay. So I studied and I entered the industry, well, it's really about 30 years ago now. Um, My main um, skill, I guess, is a pattern maker, but I've worked in all areas of fashion. So I've worked as a sample machinist, as a designer. I've run businesses and looked after knitting mills. Um, I've worked with offshore manufacturing and local manufacturing and I started Sample Room about 13 years ago now, maybe coming up to 14 years ago, as I really saw that there was a need for the skills that I had for a number of people and I didn't really want to get stuck in one business. Mm -hmm. I liked the variety. I knew that I had a wealth of knowledge to share um, and really I didn't really want to get stuck in the office politics of one business anymore. So I started my own business. And it's been a wonderful journey. Um, I started off with just myself as it's called the sample room because I realised there was a real need for samples to be made with pattern makers. Having those two disciplines separate is quite frustrating for a pattern maker and a sample machinist. And I'm a pattern maker who's also been a sample machinist, so I had that skill. So started off just by myself and then grew the team and now we're a team of 12 over pattern makers and cutters and sample machinists and production machinists. Amazing. So what services do you do you provide as a sample room and in which sectors do you operate? Mm. We really work with anything to do with fabric. Okay. So that could be clothing, it could be accessories. Um, I have a background, uh, I like to say, from wetsuits wet to wedding dresses. Okay. I've worked across a whole broad range of products. So there really isn't a lot that I can't do apart from underwire bras and men's tailoring. Um, lingerie is a totally different skill set and whilst I would love to learn it I probably do enough I don't need more on the plate so within our business we are primarily a development house so we work with designers across men's women's and children sportswear swimwear evening wear wedding dresses and they come to us with an idea and then we create the pattern the sample 
all the specifications and go through that development process to fit the garment with the designer, make the alterations and prepare it for production. Mm-hmm. We also have small run production in-house, which we introduced probably about seven or eight years ago because we found that so many of our clients were finding it too difficult to find production houses for small run. And so we, we introduced that and that area has grown a lot in the last couple of years. And then alongside that, we also run a mentoring program, which we can talk about later, but that was really introduced because we work with so many startup designers who just didn't know what to do. So we it's a huge problem. Way. It's a huge, huge problem, isn't it? Because we've democratized, you mm-hmm. know, if we're going to talk about digital later, digital printing later too. We've democratized the space. So anybody mm-hmm. can do anything. But we all know that we, you know, our skills are so often in silos, aren't they? And we don't under, we don't really appreciate them until you start to try to develop a new product. And in the same manufacture space and the design space, there are so, so, so many things there that can go terribly, terribly wrong and quite often do if you don't get the right expertise, but they don't go wrong till you get your stuff back from production and you've got samples or you know production volumes of sewn garments that just don't have the fine detail that you expected your manufacturer to deliver. So, you know, how would you, how do you start with, um, say, a, a young designer, Julia? So say somebody came to you, they've got their vision, they've got their sketches, they've got everything. It's such a, a difficult road, isn't it? And yet you, you have that skill set that can put, that can resolve all of those little pain points across there to make sure they're as well prepared as they can be. Yes, and look, it is a huge journey and the program has evolved in a huge way since I first launched it. Yeah. Uh, I always tell people the story that we launched Sample Room when Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest launched. Okay. And so for the first time ever, anyone who's been in the industry for any length of time, it was unheard of to start your own business as soon as you left fashion school. Mm. You know, you had to have years of experience in the industry and a lot of money. Yes. Because you really had to go directly into wholesale or into your own retail store. Yes. And so it totally changed the game. And all of a sudden we had instant access to our clients. We could make one garment at a time, mm-hmm. pop it up on Instagram. Someone would send us money and we would sell that. So through that process, we had so many people come to us who didn't even have any experience, but they were really good and they knew how to manage these platforms. So they had the, I guess, the customer base, but they just needed to know. And within two months, they were saying to me, this is too hard, Julia, everything People ask me these questions. I've got no idea what the words mean. I feel like I'm behind the eight ball and I'm hitting the brick wall. So I thought this isn't very good for business to have people just stopping after two months. So the first fashion label launch pad was a group of startups around a table once a month and I would guide them through what they needed to do in that really six-month cycle, Mm -hmm. which somebody who knows what they're doing, it's really a six-month cycle. When you're new, it's really a year-long cycle because you don't realise how much is involved. And then I had people interstate ask for the information, so we put it online, and then I recorded the whole program. And it sat like that for about really seven or eight years. And just in the last two years, I have re-recorded the whole program, okay. so expanded the content, um, modernised it, I guess, further, brought in more information that I know people need. And as I have done that, I've taken what I've learned from what I see startups go through and introduced that. For example... People come to me with an idea, but they don't often think about how they're going to sell it. 
mm-hmm. or who they're going to market it to. Yep. And a lot of people think that you build a website and you have an Instagram following and that's all that you need and it's not true at all. <laughs> there is so much that is involved in marketing and it really is a critical part of any successful label. So we start off by really um, a, a process of explaining who your customer is and what you're looking to do so that myself as the pattern maker can see your vision and the graphic designer can see your vision and the web developer and then you build those foundations so that when the time comes to market that you know who your customer is. It's the same for any industry but for some reason people think in fashion they don't always think about that. Do you find as well, Julia, that um, it definitely happens here in, in, in Europe that graduates um, leave leave their universities and they think they're primed to, to get everything right and then they, it's really sad because they just don't have it's, – it's a lottery here of which university you go to um, to get mm-hmm. – whether you get the, the skill set that you need when you leave. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just not easy to have a drawing and then convert it into a garment, is it, at all? I mean, they don't no. – you know, do you find that um, there's a huge gap of information for tech packs, for example? Do people just don't – people – don't understand how to make a garment. I know. <laughs> and tech packs are a bit of a, they're not a dirty word in our business, yeah. but we have a lot of frustration with tech packs. And, um, you know, I always say to any student, school was never meant to equip you with knowing everything. Mm-hmm. It's meant to give you a really broad overview, really, so you can say, do you still want to be in this industry? This is the reality. You know, you may have thought it was flicking through magazines, but this is the reality of what happens. Are you still interested in pursuing that and what area? And then you would get a job in that particular field and you would further your knowledge base there. The schools are teaching tech packs, which for a long time has been really critical Mm -hmm. because we've very much been in an offshore manufacturing environment. But now with the move to onshore, there's just a lot of mistruths and a lot of information on the internet that talk about tech packs mm. and it's not the whole picture. Mm-hmm. So people will send us tech packs nearly every day. We have people contacting us with tech packs and we always have a look at them and they vary wildly yes. from a sketch and a little bit of fabric to a whole lot of things that say factory to source, which is my favourite or least favourite saying, factory to source or dyed to match is another one that really, really annoys me because that is what happens overseas, but you don't do that locally. Yes. And so it really is two totally different industries. And if you know a local manufacturing industry, it's easy overseas, but if you only know overseas, then it's impossible for local because there's a whole lot of mysterious stuff that happens after you send that document. So people... Sometimes I think that they think a tech pack turns magically into production, mm-hmm. but that's really just a design brief. Yep. And it's a design brief in the way that the factory they can then come back to you and say, but you told me this. But, you know, there's no flexibility. There's no um, creativity in that process. And so it really does. it really is more of a hindrance than a help for a lot of people. So we say, we don't need a tech pack, we just have a conversation. Okay, and you, you're encouraging that then. De- most, I mean, I always have as well, most definitely get as close to your manufacturer as possible. Yeah, so we um, we have a different process where uh, we talk about a design brief. Mm-hmm. We create a design brief document from that and that is the start of a tech pack. But a tech pack really is 
as a technical document changes when you put that graded specification in it. Yeah. So that's the measurements of the pattern over all the sizes, which is impossible until you've made a pattern. Yes. Otherwise, you're pulling numbers from thin air. And as a pattern maker, my least favorite thing to do in everything that I do, and I have a team of 12, so there's a lot of annoying things you do as a business owner, is trying to make a pattern fit to a a spec that has been, the numbers have come from elsewhere that I don't know. Really, it's so difficult. Well, people often have a garment, a pattern, and a specification, and they don't match, and you don't know which one you're meant to be following. Yes. Yeah. So um, we say that a specification is extracted from the pattern from your approved garment. It's interesting, isn't it, really? Like you say, it's just being able to tie all those knots together but know which ones Mm. are incorrect from the beginning so you don't get through manufacturing. It's so, so hard, isn't it? Would you say then, just just to summarise in that that section, how would you summarise and say the industry has changed just in the last two years? Mm. post-COVID, We've I had guess. a lot of COVID. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, look, I think that it was starting to change previous mm-hmm. because people have realised that the prices overseas are no longer what they used to be. Okay. But definitely there have been a lot more people wanting to move back locally mm-hmm. and a lot of bigger brands looking to move back to local manufacturing, um, which is fantastic, but we have a very small industry to support that. So it's been quite difficult to manage that. Um, I'm not sure if that will continue, and I. But what I do encourage people to do is to bring their development back locally, because then they can be geo flexible wherever they go. Okay. So then they may test their product in the local market. Then they may move to other countries. So it's not all based around one particular country. For Australians, very much China. They could go to Fiji, they could go to Indonesia, they could go to Vietnam, they could go to China, India, Bangladesh. They can really be quite flexible based on their quantities and Mm -hmm. the products that they're making. So there's definitely a move when people have realised that they can't rely on their factory as well, so they're having to move countries and what that means for them with the ownership of their IP because a lot of the time the factory have owned the IP. Um, There has been a move... Um, a lot more people have wanted to start businesses during the pandemic. They've had time on their hands. So that has been a big move for us. But of all the extra communication and contacts we had with people, it didn't really translate because I think a lot of people still tried to pursue their offshore in whatever way they could because they knew it and they didn't know that local development process. It's it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, we see that here too, you know, um, online entrepreneurial brands are absolutely flourishing the trick is to remain out there and to make sure that your business is viable and that you invest in your product your product knowledge and your supply chain to make sure that it all keeps going really and you have that continuity of supply which i think is always a huge huge problem for everybody isn't it choosing the right manufacturer i definitely have seen that the price of garments have increased and the price of locally made garments are definitely sitting where they should be. So I feel like the retail price point in the market has definitely split into an obvious local, locally produced product range and an offshore produced product range, which I love because now it makes it much easier for somebody if they want to work locally, that there are a lot more people in that space charging what they should. 
okay, so they're getting a fair price for their products, do you think? And the customer, (laughs) the end customer is willing to pay a little bit more, Julia, would you say, to know that it's a local garment? Well, I was actually talking... I was actually talking the other day with uh, one of the universities here. Yeah. I had a coffee with one of the heads of the school and she mentioned that one of our major retailers has now an Australian-made program and they're bringing back some of their original garments. So they've got a shirt. It's a chambray shirt for men and they are charging $160 for that shirt as an Australian-made product where they could never get more than 120 as a made-in-China product. And they are selling out. They cannot keep up with demand. So people are happy to spend more money as long as you can really prove and talk about the fact that you are making locally or you are using local fabrics. or It's telling the story, really, which is all about the marketing. It's interesting, isn't it? It'll be interesting to see how that, that if, if you won't, we won't see this for a little while, but if people are willing to pay a little bit more, are they going to buy less in that niche market? So are they buying for longevity? They're happy to pay it, pay for something and think, no, I'm going to keep that for three, four, five years or, or longer if it sits well in my wardrobe. I think that's really critical and that's a whole other conversation about sustainability and what's happening in the industry yeah. around the world. And I think that that is a, a critical conversation that we need to have about the overproduction of products and the waste of faulty garments as they come in to any country. It's not just in Australia. No, it's, um, it's, and I think that local can talk a lot to that and also these different business models yeah. or um, actually charging the correct price so everyone's paid fairly and you could actually have a viable business from it. Social responsibility. Yeah, definitely. So, so, so important. And the fashion industry typically has such a terrible reputation for that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we can actually all, all together clean up the whole thing really i think that's probably a little naive <laughs> but you know if if even a small proportion of us try to do better then that's that's progress isn't it really if you had to summarize then julia what would you say the main challenges are for independent designers and brands we had to drill that down what 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 do people have to look out for so if if someone was a startup and hadn't experienced the industry before as an independent designer, it would really be about understanding the process because there is such a small pool of people who can do the work, yes. whether it's pattern makers yeah. or manufacturers, that if they even hear a hint of someone not knowing what they're talking about, then they're not even going to answer your phone call. It's in the too hard basket. And so they will really struggle with getting any traction with anybody who can actually do the work if they don't know how that process works. Yeah. So we receive phone calls all the time and they say, I can't believe that you've actually answered my email. I've emailed 25 people and no one's answered my email. And there's a reason for that. And the reason why we're so open to it is because we have the support program, but that you have to invest in that to, to learn. There is such a lack of manufacturing around. At the moment, our manufacturing area is booked out till May next year. Wow. Which is crazy. We've never been booked out this long before. And there's a few other reasons apart from what's happening at the moment. We've changed a process for ourselves in our business that we give people their development and production prices right up front. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they that kind of bill shock happens early on and once they progress then they're happy to go the whole way through so we've got an influx of a lot of people for a lot of startup designers 
um, the process is far harder than anyone would ever imagine. And the concern that people have with not selling can really stop them at a lot of places. The fear of making the wrong decision throughout that process, whether it's am I choosing the right designs or the right colours or the right fabric, will this sell, will I find customers, can really stop a lot of designers along the way. So we try our hardest to help people by doing very small quantities. So they're testing the market in a really small way and building up their client base rather than these numbers of 100 or 200 pieces it's just too much for a startup when they don't have the the email list or the market to sell to it's, it's, it's interesting isn't it really you know so many people just don't think about the whole the whole scenario they don't have a strong business plan plan a plan b and again that kind of comes from education too doesn't it really or they have an over ambitious plan and they don't know how they're going to get there they think because every factory that they call up says their minimums are 300 they think that that's the norm until we say we've got clients who have been in business for five ten years who still are making less than 100 per style and they have an active database of people when you don't have an active database that is that can just kill you with the first production run it does it's just a complete freeze of cash flow isn't it all your money's tied up in stock yeah. Or you've got the same thing on your website for three years and no one comes back to buy because they've seen that already. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Although I've seen a few people try to reverse that scenario recently where by, not, by, only having, by trying to build a loyal, loyal basis but not having anything new and that's their, that's their USP, nothing new and no sale, products are always at the same price, which is kind of, Refreshing, really. It's a different business model. Let's see how those those goes. But there is a huge market. There's room for everybody, isn't there? Most definitely. Yeah, Julia, um, I watched one of your webinars recently, and I have to say to anybody and everybody, you must watch them. They are, it was so good. It was absolutely brilliant. And it kind of prompted me to get back in touch and organise the, the, the video podcast as well today. Now, the, the, the webinar in question was about reshoring, etc. So, Obviously, can we can we drill down to that? Is reshoring real, and what are the challenges and the benefits? Mm. Thank you for joining me on that podcast. It was, it was so great. nice to see your name come up. Um, the podcast that we we're talking about is called "The True Cost of Offshore Versus Onshore," yeah. which I started in two thousand and nineteen, and the reason why I first introduced it, I've worked with both onshore and offshore, and I had. So many people call us up saying they've had such a bad experience with offshore and we hear the horror stories of faulty garments and various things. And I used to think, I I really just don't think it's that different. And it wasn't until I put everything into a spreadsheet that one day I realised it actually is not as different as what people think. When you bring every all the prices in, for example, freight costs, exchange rate, um, quality of product, the faulty goods, the development costs, everything all together. And so it wasn't until we actually sat down and put that together and went, wow, this is actually quite an eye opener. So the reason why I love doing that webinar is because I just want to dispel the whole myth about the cost of garments Mm -hmm. because it is one of the biggest hurdles to people moving back onshore. Yes because they're concerned that, well, it is so much cheaper overseas and so they keep on getting drawn back into that. 
So when we expose that myth, then all of a sudden it's now up to people to make the decision without that massive hurdle in the way. So onshoring is very real and there's so many benefits to onshoring that people, until they experience it, you know, I have people all the time say to me, this is so easy. And I say, yes, it should be. It actually <laughs> yeah. is easy. Without the frustration of communicating back and forth with somebody or receiving samples that you've asked for one thing to be fixed and then three other things need fixing that didn't need fixing before or um, yeah, opening up boxes of garments and things are faulty yeah. is a really big one and a very sad one. It's good business. I think what was also brilliant in, uh, in there too was your spreadsheets which you, you must get a great reaction when young designers or independent brands. Now, I keep saying young, it's not true. Anybody that goes, decides, right, I'm going to have a fashion brand, it could be any age at all. But those spec sheets are so, so, so helpful because they really drill down into the nitty gritty of everything. So you cost everything. And then you really are aware of your true margins and what you can and can't create. And most importantly, what you're going to sell it for. Well, this is true. And it's quite interesting. I've recently been in communication with um, a gentleman called Fraser who origin was the original, um, I guess, publisher of our industry magazine called Rag Trader. Okay. He started the magazine 1972 and he sold it, but he comes back in as a guest speaker yep. or a guest writer, I guess. So we've been talking and I sent him the recording of the um of that particular presentation and he just came back and said I have one question where have you been my whole life <laughs> I've been looking for this information for so long but until you've sat on both sides of the fence yeah. then you don't actually have the information in your hand and I'm in a space of educating people about yeah. the industry so I want to share this information whereas I think a lot of people are hiding it away and they don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed that that's happened to them or that they haven't dived, yeah. dived deep dive into their numbers I think you're right, though. People don't want to, to don't don't want to show that they don't know everything. And I think I don't know. I think it's kind of a post lockdown thing, really. People are coming out of their silos and they're sharing knowledge. And you know, people could put their hand up and say, "Actually, I no, I don't explain that," and uh, not be so protective, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I really hope that through the process of seeing that particular webinar, we we hold that webinar twice a year. Um, and, but we have a wait list if anyone's interested in jumping yeah. on there. But I, I, what I really hope is that people then go full steam ahead into local development and production without that hint or that back of their mind thinking, am I being silly? Should I be doing this offshore? Am I being ripped off or is there a cheaper way? And so it really exposes the fact that it's not necessarily cheaper. But it's sometimes hard to switch, isn't it, really? Which is why it's so important that, you know, people have access to, to specialists such as yourself because it just takes, removes a massive pain point. It's so, so, so important. Um, Julia, talking about 3D design, tell me, um, how can 3D design assist the designer when creating a garment? And are those garments really production ready, as in, a digital twin. Have you come across this in your workspace? Um, we talk about 3D modelling a lot in our workroom mm -hmm. about whether it's something that we should invest in. And in Australia, the Australian Fashion Council have just done a big project on 3D um, designing to see whether it's a way that they can fast track the sampling process. 
There are a few things that do bother me about it, that people tend to think that it doesn't involve a pattern, that you kind of create this thing on a model or a avatar mm-hmm. and it creates the pattern, but it still needs to start from a pattern. So that tends to get brushed over a lot whenever I see anything about 3D modeling. The other thing I see is that it, where I think it sits very well is if you have an indecisive designer yep. who needs to see something on the model and then tweak and change things. Mm-hmm. So they might see a long sleeve, long dress and think, no, I want to make it short sleeve or can we shorten it and can we add that? That's fantastic because that really reduces the number of samples. In our business, we very rarely go over two samples. So it's not really reducing it anymore for us. Yeah. But you still do need to put a garment on a model at some stage because fabric reacts very differently. Um, And I am working with two people at the moment who are using 3D modelling. We recently did a presentation last week with Mamaki in LA and our patterns were put onto a Tugatek mannequin yeah and it was a manual that had a chest that poked out really far and his shoulders were back and so our t-shirts look terrible on the mannequin and I thought that's not how they look on a body I've fitted this t-shirt so many times yeah and then flip over I was talking to a customer of ours in Alaska who uses Optitex yeah and he was showing our t-shirt on the Optitex 3d model and that looked fantastic so it really depends also on the avatar that's being used and what, how, you know, there's still a lot of development that needs to happen. So I can definitely see that there is a huge benefit, um, but I don't think it eliminates or definitely doesn't eliminate pattern making and it, it doesn't eliminate all sampling. It just reduces the number of samples and really more in that offshore or if someone is looking to evolve their design through the process. That's sort of my opinion on that topic. <laughs> yeah, I think, I th- yeah, I think there's there's still a long way to go there, isn't there? Most definitely. And I think, you know, you, we touched on it earlier. There are so many, so many things that can and need to be considered in that journey of a garment from, you know, from a sketch all the way through to retail and production. And I think sometimes we get a bit over overexcited, don't we, about technologies as they come through. You know, they have certain applications, but unfortunately they can be missold sometimes as a, you know, a whole 360 um, production solution. Um, and I guess that always depends on whoever's business model it is, whether whether that is true or not, really. But it's never a one size fits all, which is probably a bit ironic talking in the fashion industry because, you know, that doesn't work out either. Sorry, pardon the poem, but uh, yeah, it's true though, isn't it, really? It's, it's, yeah, lots of benefits, but not quite there yet. Definitely. Speaking of benefits then, um, I am conscious of time, Julia, as well here. So what do you think the benefits of digital printing technologies are for the fashion community? And have you seen a, a, a huge a, a growth in your products with people using digital? I absolutely love digital printing and I have for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when digital printing really came to the fore, it was just a huge revelation because we moved from having to print 400 metres of screen printed fabric yep. to being able to react really quickly and do small runs. So all of a sudden in the world of Instagram and um, small designers, we could create really unique product, small quantities to really get our name out there and create a unique product in the marketplace. So huge fan. Um, I encourage my mentees as much as I possibly can 
to get involved in digital printing. And we have really strong relationships with a lot of the printing companies through our Pattern Room website. Um, I, the downside in Australia up until just recently has really been the natural fibre space. Okay. But we've recently had a Cornet delivered into Australia, yeah. which we've become very good friends with the people who have taken delivery of that machine. And that is really going to change the game once again, that people are no longer sitting in that polyester space, sublimation printing, they can really expand out. We have another printing company called Next State who we work with quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to be able to say what machinery they have, but they have really expanded that um, market as well. So I love the idea of placement printing and laser cutting. I love the idea of yardage printing on different substrates. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, people want to be unique now. Again, the industry has changed a huge amount from when we were younger that everyone wanted to look exactly the same (laughs) with your Levi 501s and your white T-shirt. Now everyone wants to be really individual. So bringing in that digital printing um, and that surface print design. And there are a lot of people who are doing surface print design as a hobby now. So there are a lot of beautiful designs in the world that need to get out there and what better way than on clothing? It's definitely, artisan communities are growing, aren't they, really? They really are. And, you know, when people do want, as you say, garments, they're looking for personalised, customised, on-demand garments as well. And I I guess what you're seeing is in your space is young, I'm doing it again, designers um, who, as you say, just want 100 SKUs but they can print for that. They don't have to print three, 4,000 metres. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that means you can get really great turnover on your website and you stop coming out all the time and printing the same print on a whole lot of different yeah. fabrics to create different garments. It's really exciting. So you're just adding that newness whenever they want it. Yeah. And I guess, and I guess you know, as, as you say, if you've got the right manufacturer, you've got all of the information and you've trained well, then that's a, that's a, a smoother process. Have you find that the manufacturers are are okay for smaller quantities now, Julia, as well? They are starting to. The problem with small smaller quantities, and we in our business, we um, go down to a run of twenty for our mentees. That's part of the package they get with our fashion label okay. launch pad program. So twenty pieces over four sizes, and then you go up to fifty and a hundred. Mm-hmm. Most of the manufacturers in Australia sort of sit around 60 as a minimum, 60 pieces. Um, But it just really depends on how big they are. And really, I I think a lot of the manufacturers don't want to go down lower than that because the price has to go up so much that they know it's not viable for a lot of people. So we call a run of 20 a a marketing run, which is really just to get your name out there and test your product before you then step up to 50 or 100 pieces. Okay. Okay. Julia, do you think um, in in your experience with the manufacturers that you're dealing with, is the manufacturing community investing in technology? Not really. No. Not in Australia. Um, I think, unfortunately, the history of manufacturing in Australia for the fashion industry, we used to have tariffs many years ago. I'm not sure if it's the same in the UK. And when those tariffs reduced, every company rushed offshore in a hurry and left a whole lot of people to lose a lot of money Um, so i don't think there's a lot of really a lot of encouragement for people to go into manufacturing Um, i'm very unusual to be a a female in manufacturing at the age that i'm at which is really just because it's an industry that i love 
But a lot of the people are old men and they made their money many years ago. They're just keeping themselves busy, but they're, they're not about to reinvest in new dyeing machines or we've got a problem. We, we can't really make a lot of fabric in Australia anymore because we've run out. The machines are too old. Um, even machinery. We buy new machinery because I don't like buying old machinery and then spending a whole lot of money to fix it up. Yep. But we've kind of got a viable business model. But for a lot of people, it's really hard and they can't find anyone to buy their business afterwards. So why would they invest in a piece of machinery that they're planning that it will last for 10 or 15 years? So more so in the pattern making side, there are a couple of people buying laser cutter or Gerber cutters. Yeah. Um, which is quite different than the printing industry, which invests quite heavily in new technology, which is wonderful to see. Yeah, I think it's it's still early days, isn't it? You know, when we, even when we look at the print segment, they say we're six to eight percent digital. Really, if you were to compare that back to the fashion end, really, of how how you change historic production and in a sector of the market that is so margin driven and making low margins too, especially in the mass volume side of things, where do they find the capital and the investment to invest in those new technologies? How does that happen? And they are talking about supporting manufacturers at the moment. We, within our Australian government, they have recently changed the skill shortage list and sewing machinists are on that list Mm -hmm. and they're looking to support Um, manufacturing a little bit more but it's always been very hard even we have a technology solution for the fashion industry but we sort of sit outside the fashion industry for that Um, but there's also some issues within the industry Um, just I do an Instagram live every Wednesday morning and just I think it was two weeks ago I was busting a myth that another pattern maker had on their website that digital pattern making is clunky and boxy and doesn't work which is not true. It's just that they don't do it. So they wanted to put that rumour out there that technology is not good for the industry, which is just keeping us way back in the dark ages. They are both exactly the same, whether it's manual or computer pattern making. It's up to the operator and what they're doing. So there's a lot of um, fear around technology, I think, in the clothing industry. And so it's keeping us in a very small backward space that we're not going to be able to progress rather than embracing it and realizing everyone has a different way of working and as long as the end result is the best result that's the main thing it's interesting isn't it i can remember talking to a huge printer here in the uk very at the beginning of his digital printing journey and he said this is 15 years ago 10 15 years ago and he said the hardest thing isn't the technology it's changing the mindset of the printer because they all they think they're going to be replaced Actually, what happened was they now have this incredible state-of-the-art factory printing, you know, 80,000 metres a week of digital print printing. And the actual print technology, the print tech, they are now the print technicians work in an incredibly high-tech, clean environment, completely different to the traditional, you know, print factory. So it's, yes. Yeah, it is. It's like you say, busting that myth of, myth of fear really is that p- the new technologies bring new skills, new skill sets and a quest for knowledge, really. Um, but it takes it takes time to switch a whole industry. Um, I think it's a really important thing because we also have a huge skill shortage of people who want to go into the technical side of the industry. Yeah. And so we need to sell that as an attractive thing to go into, whether yes. it's a beautiful workplace yes. or try new technologies or 
being inspired by what's coming into the market. Yeah. If we don't offer that, then most people who go into fashion want to be a designer. They don't want to be a pattern maker or a garment tech or a machinist, even a sample machinist. So I think we it's becoming quite desperate and we need to showcase the technical side in a sexy way. Yes, you know, we, we need do, to yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Make it look more attractive. Yeah, we need to get some marketing spin going there, don't we? Definitely. <laughs> Julia, just before we've got um, a couple more questions, um, can you share some of your favourite success stories? Oh, you had shared this question with me earlier and I have so many. And because I work with around 50 startup designers at any one time, and I have done for the last 10 years, I often forget who the early people were. Yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned it to Kate, who's my 2IC. I said, Kate, who comes to mind? And we have this fantastic designer, Sammy, from Dream With Me Sleepwear. And she's been on quite the journey and she joined our program quite a few years ago now and then she tried her um, hand in Sri Lanka and then she went to China and she tried all the offshore options and then she came back and she said, I just... I'm just going to make my price point the right price point. I'm never doing that again. It was such a nightmare. I lost so much money. And she has created a beautiful range of silk sleepwear with beautiful, unique prints. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been really lovely seeing her evolution in herself as a designer and really to stick with it and not give up on that journey yeah. when it all seemed too hard, but really dig deep and think, well, what's important to me? And she now has ethical accreditation, which is an accreditation we have in Australia um, which you need to apply for and there's a lot of a whole lot of checks to do with who you're working with. Um, we have such a number of, you know, there's a, another one called Harry and Pop, which was a children's sun protection swimwear range, okay. which is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, another called uh, West of the Waves, Sarah from West of the Waves. She is in North Mackay. We work with people all over Australia, actually the world, yeah. and some people we never meet face to face. Yeah. But seeing how these businesses evolve and the tenacity is what I, I love. You know, who is going to get on Instagram and, and do a live or do a reel and showcase their product because it's not just about drawing the picture. There is so much more to having a business. Yep. We all have to be marketers too, don't we? The skill set. We certainly do. It's a huge part of yeah. business. And 24-7. <laughs> Definitely. We do. We do. Um, just before we finish, Julia, could you tell us about the academy? We touched on it earlier, um, but if you could summarise what the what the learning is and, and how your clients develop. Absolutely. So the Fashion Labour Launchpad program that I have developed for people with no prior knowledge or experience in the fashion industry to teach them about the technical side and the manufacturing start, mm -hmm. side of starting a fashion label. So it's a one-year mentoring program. And it's a combination of videos to watch, uh, group calls, ask me anything calls, and that one-on-one -on -one support as we go through the pattern making, sample making and development process through to manufacturing with our own in-house team. So it really is a combination of learning and support and mentoring. It's a fantastic service, Julia, it really is. And of course, you know, we touched on this before, it's worldwide. Anybody can join. Absolutely. And we start off the process through a workshop that we do called the Start Your Fashion Business Workshop, mm -hmm. which is a really great way for people to find out what's involved in having a fashion label, whether they're suited to it and the skills that are needed. And it's really an introduction. And we have another one of those workshops on the 6th of February, which you can find out about on our website. Isn't it amazing what we can all do when we all work together? 
out of the silos. Absolutely. It really is. It's fantastic. Julia, we're nearly, nearly, nearly there. Uh, it's been, we've, we've chatted for so long and I can't wait to meet you in person, actually. Um, hopefully at Festival in Munich in May, that which will be an absolute joy. Really, really look forward to that. Could you tell us what, what's next for the Supple Room and what can listeners and viewers look forward to for 2023? Well, we are actually going to be launching an ongoing membership that happens after the Fashion Label Launchpad because um, it's a little bit cruel to give people all of my information for one year yep. and then cut them off and let them float away. It just doesn't work. There's there's 30 years of information inside me that I'm here to share and I realise that as businesses evolve and grow, it's a really important aspect. Mm-hmm. And we're also bringing other mentors into that membership in social media and printing and uh, styling photography, graphic design to support people through as they grow. So that's a really big thing next year. And of course, our Pattern Room website, which is another arm of our business, will be going to FESPA and also to the States. Yeah, and that's should, really another arm. We should touch that on that. People. We should touch on that as well, definitely before we finish, because we actually met through the Pattern Room, not Sample Room, didn't we? Of course, it's the same thing, but just different brands. Um, and the Pattern Room is a fantastic resource for anybody to pick up a digital pattern online, and use it for their own use. It's fantastic. You've got how many thousands of patterns have you got now? It's huge. We're currently up to 300,000 designs on there. That's rather a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Have you seen the new website? We've relaunched a website just this year that makes it much easier for people to build their own garment. Fantastic. And actually, yeah. think so um, it's really exciting. And, and Pattern Room was really developed because there are some people who just want a t shirt. Yes. And and I thought, and they would say to me, I don't want to do a course or anything. I just need a T-shirt. And I thought, you're right. You should just be able to have a T-shirt. <laughs> but I also knew that the cost of developing a T-shirt can run into seven or $800. And I was just repeating the same T-shirt each yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to give people access to something that was for those basics that have been pre-fitted by our team and tested hundreds of times on other um, house models and fit models to create something that's really easy to access. So at least you can dip your toe in the water in that small way, but more importantly that you can use that for putting graphics and sublimation printing and really creating unique garments from something that you just want the T-shirt to fit. Definitely. Well, that's exactly what we did for sportswear, wasn't it? Together a a couple of years ago, actually. And, you know, we'll, we'll showcase some of that in Munich um, as well, I think. And we created a whole range of garments for sportswear. And then we rendered patterns onto it for printing, printed them and had them sewn and manufactured. It's just, you know, it's fantastic. It's a brilliant resource. It really is. So Julia, you are you really are covering the circle 360 now, aren't you? It's fabulous. It's good. Try my hand. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well do say hi to Daniel. Um, it's been an absolute joy talking with you um, look forward to catching up next year in person and thanks for sparing you th- us the time today it's been fabulous we could chat for days you've got so much knowledge it's brilliant <laughs> it's always lovely speaking to you Jimmy. thank you so oh, it's much great. it's always great to catch up I look forward to next May where we can catch up in person we'll be there in no time at all won't we take care wonderful Bye. take care